I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Music is a major part of almost every religious tradition, whether it's liturgical music performed in sacred rituals, the ecstatic performances of mystics, um, hymns sung in church, or the recitation of sacred scriptures like the Vedas or the Quran. The sonic or auditory dimension of religious experience is a significant one, but one that is often overlooked by scholars in favor of more visual or perhaps text-based dimensions and, and aspects. We have already explored the major role that music has played in the religion of Islam through Sufism in a previous episode, and today we're going to explore its sister religion of Judaism. In particular, how have the so-called Jewish mystics employed and imagined the role of music throughout history and today? Judaism is full of music. There is music in the synagogues, music at wedding celebrations, music in the Hasidic movement, etc. To cover all of music in Judaism would require a whole series, so we're going to limit ourselves here to exploring music in the totally clear and unproblematic concept of mysticism. That's sarcasm, by the way. For the record, we are defining music in mysticism here broadly as any music that is used or makes up the content of altered states of consciousness or descriptions of music as a significant part of a metaphysical or cosmological framework. You may observe that that is also rather broad, which is true, but we will try to cover the topic as comprehensively as we can. So to begin with, is there music in Jewish mysticism? There definitely is, both in what is known as Kabbalah, which could be considered a certain kind of Jewish mysticism, but also in Jewish mysticism more broadly defined. From the oldest practices of the Israelite prophets in ancient times through to the ecstatic uh, practices of Abraham Abulafia and the ecstatic Kabbalist to the theosophical speculation of the Kabbalist in Svat in the 16th century all the way to the Hasidut and the otherwise known as the Hasidic movement today, there is a lot of stuff to explore here. 
We can begin by rewinding the clock to some of the most foundational periods of Judaism's development. In the ancient Israelite religion, music seemed to have played a major role. Indeed, some of the great Israelite prophets that are mentioned in the Bible and the Quran were musicians themselves. King David, who is considered a prophet in Islam and sometimes in certain strands of Judaism and Christianity, has being a musician as one of his main characteristics, being referred to as an excellent player of the lyre or the lute. Indeed, the Psalms, a major part of the Bible attributed to David himself, are essentially songs often intended to have instrumental accompaniment. And there are other figures too, prophets who are reported to have been musicians such as Habakkuk. But aside from this, prophecy and divine revelation in ancient Jerusalem and the Israelite religion seems to have been intimately connected to music in and of itself. Some of the prophets would have used music as a way, a technique, of reaching a state receptible to revelation from God, thus making it an integral part of the prophetic experience itself. This can be seen in biblical verses like in 1 Samuel, quote, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Or in Second Kings, when the prophet Elijah attains prophetic experience while hearing music, quote, But now bring me a minstrel, or a musician. And it came to pass, when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. These two quotes in particular became very popular to use for later mystics in the Middle Ages in support of their mystical practices involving music as a means to prophecy, as we will see soon. But it certainly seems that there was a connection between prophecy and music in the earliest periods. Music had the ability to affect the person to such a degree that they could receive revelation from God. Not only this, but the sources also indicate that music played a major role in the rituals in the Temple of Jerusalem. The priests would sing and sometimes play musical instruments as they performed these sacrifices and other rites. The temple practice also seemed to have involved certain kinds of states that could be deemed mystical. With the help of musical instruments and melodies, the high priest would enter a kind of mystical experience. The medieval Kabbalist Isaac ben Jacob HaKohen wrote, quote, the high priest knows how to fully direct his concentration on all inner and outer emanations in order to exert influence by means of the secrets of the holy seraphim. His elevation is according to either his closeness or remoteness. His power is awakened by the sweetness of the song and the pure prayer. So do the musicians direct their fingers according to their elevation and understanding, placing them on the keyholes of wind instruments, kinorot, and on strings, arousing the songs and the melody to direct their hearts towards God. Thus the blessing is aroused and the shekhinah resides in them, on each one according to his performance and according to his understanding. In other words, through the mystical experience induced by music, the Shekhinah, the divine presence in the world, sometimes translated as the Holy Spirit, sort of descends and comes to reside in them. Now this is a medieval source talking about ancient practices, but other sources seem to indicate similar things. And it is indeed in the Middle Ages that the role of music in Jewish mysticism really starts to pick up again, because after the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, there isn't all that much in terms of references to music being used uh, in, in a you know, mystical sense in that way. But from the 12th and 13th centuries, when certain new forms of Jewish mysticism really started to develop and grow, such as Kabbalah, for example, we really start to see a new flourishing and flowering of music as a means to 
mystical experience, but also music being used metaphorically in the more metaphysical and cosmological schemes of these Kabbalists. I should point out that from now on, I'm hugely indebted to Moshe Idel in particular, who has written a lot of articles on this topic, and a lot of what I present in this episode will be based on a lot of his writings. The endlessly fascinating figure of Abraham Abulafia, who founded a form of Kabbalah referred to as prophetic Kabbalah or ecstatic Kabbalah, developed intricate techniques of reaching intense mystical experiences, the peak of which he considered to be identical with prophecy. These techniques included the vocal recitation of vowels or letters of the Hebrew alphabet, accompanied by certain movements and other forms of meditation. And one important feature of this practice was indeed music. Abu Lafi himself writes, quote, Make that special breath as long as you can according to your capacity for taking one long breath, as long as you can possibly make it, and sing the Aleph and every other letter which you proclaim with awe, fear, and reverence, until the joy of the soul is combined with its understanding, which is great. The form of the tune for each letter should be in the image of the vowel points, it should be in the form of the holam upwards. End quote. In another text, he says, quote, In this matter, he should transpose each letter frontwards and backwards using many tunes. End of quote. These are obviously very practical instructions and deals primarily with vocal music, so using tunes or melodies when pronouncing and reciting these divine names or letters, but we also see in some of Abu Lafia's students, some of his later followers, that they also included certain musical instruments in these kinds of practices. Judah Al-Botini writes, quote, He should continue to play on all sorts of musical instruments if he has such or if he knows how to play on them. If not, he should make music with his mouth by means of his voice, singing the verses of praise and out of love for the Torah, in order to gladden the living soul which is partnered to the speaking intellectual soul. End of quote. So clearly, in the ecstatic Kabbalah of Abu Lafia and his followers, music was an important part of practice and could lead to the highest forms of mystical experience, that of prophecy. But what's going on here? How do they explain this apparent power of music? Well, Abu Lafia himself, again, says, quote, The proof that song indicates the degree of prophecy is that it is the way of song to make the heart happy by means of tunes, as it is said, and when the minstrel played, the power of the Lord came upon him. For prophecy does not dwell in him unless there is joy. End of quote. The Kabbalists refer back to the aforementioned biblical verses as proof that music can lead to prophecy, and Abu Lafia here explains that it leads to a joy in the heart of the person. Now, when we talk about Abu Lafia, we need to understand that most of his philosophical outlook is based on the writings of that greatest of Jewish philosophers, Maimonides. Maimonides had presented a philosophical theory of prophecy, explaining the nature of prophecy through the Aristotelian philosophical language that he was steeped in. To Maimonides, it is the intellect that is the star of the show. God is defined as pure intellect, and it is the intellectual part of human nature that is the highest. So to Maimonides, it is through cultivating the intellect, by perfecting the human spirit, that the person received revelation or prophecy through a, quote, overflow overflowing from God to the intellectual faculty. In other words, prophecy is not some random thing that just happens to a person. Prophecy is instead earned, so to say. A prophet is a person who is able to perfect his nature, his spirit and his intellect, so that it is perfectly receptible to the overflow from God. 
This is the way that the ancient prophets did it, and this is indeed the way that it can be achieved today. This is what Abu Lahya and his followers build on. Anyone can reach prophecy as long as they practice in the right way to purify the soul and the intellect. And just like the ancient prophets used music to achieve this, so do the prophetic Kabbalists. Music is very effective, in fact, through its strong impact on the soul. Furthermore, going back to Abu Lafia's circle again, one of his followers wrote, quote, It was through the enunciation of sound alone, rising and falling. The main intention was to arouse the soul to make use of all its glorious power, which is the power of intellectual attainment. End of quote. In other words, music has the ability to affect the soul, to arouse joy in the heart, and to lead the intellectual faculty to its highest power. Ideally, this would lead the practitioner to experience devekut, cleaving or uniting with the active intellect of God or with God himself, an experience that is, again, identical to prophecy. The scholar Moshe Idel, who is one of the few who has written on this topic extensively, says, quote, Music's sphere of influence is the living soul. Its task is to make the soul happy so that it will not interfere with the proper functioning of the intellectual soul or the intellect. Some have argued that this use of music in contemplative and meditative practices may have been influenced by the Sufis, the so-called Islamic mystics who had a major presence in this region at the time, and there are certainly similarities here to, to consider, but one area in which the Sufis were definitely influential were in another movement of Jewish mysticism in the 13th century, namely the pietistic movement led by Abraham ibn Maimon, the son of Maimonides. Abraham and the Pietists developed forms of prayer and meditation that seemed to be heavily influenced by the Sufis at the time, but which they themselves claimed were ancient Israelite practices that they were only reviving. Music played a major part in these practices too, which does make sense since it seems that music was a major part of prophecy and the religious practices of the ancient Israelites, which Abraham and the Pietists were attempting to revive in that way. Abraham also followed his father's theories and conceived of the role of music and the prophetic experience in a similar way to Abu Lafia. Prophecy could be attained through spiritual purification and cultivation of the intellect, and music was a great tool for that. Now sadly, none of this music survives today, and there's really no way for us to know what it sounded like, which in a way is a kind of tragedy, I think, but it is really fascinating stuff. Prophetic or ecstatic Kabbalah was a significant movement which influenced later developments, but the most major form of Kabbalah across history, and that which is most famous, is what is often referred to as Theosophical Kabbalah, which include all the theories surrounding the Ten Sfirot and the great book called the Zohar. In early Theosophical Kabbalah, we don't find as many references to music used in a practical sense, but only in analogical or metaphorical ways. But especially if we move a little ahead in history, to the time of the incredible Kabbalistic flowering in the city of Tzvat, or Safed, around the 16th century, there is a little more to grab a hold of. Here, great figures like Moshe Cordovero, Joseph Caro, and Isaac Luria would transform Kabbalah as we know it. To the Theosophical Kabbalist, music came to have a theurgic power and use. Theurgic meaning things humans do to affect the divine realm. In Kabbalah, as mentioned, there is often speculation around the ten sfirot. These can be seen as divine emanations, also representing God's attributes, descending from the infinite nature of God himself, the Ein Sof, and the highest sphira, called Keter, all the way down to the last sphira and the created world below it. 
There are centuries of writings and speculation around the nature of the Sfirot, and there is no way that we can cover it here. But one fascinating aspect of this general theory has always been that there is a kind of correspondence between the divine world of the Sfirot and our world. Things we do down here affect what happens up there. Especially in the writings of people like the aforementioned Isaac Luria, we see the idea that by following the mitzvot, the Jewish commandments in the law, we are in a way completing or healing the sfirot. Us humans can influence and directly affect the world of the divine in some way, and the Kabbalist would use musical language to explain this. The correspondence is described as the resonance between two violins. Imagine that you have two violins, and you play on a string on one of the violins. This will result in that same note or string resonating in the other violin. So this is the way that the correspondence works. What happens down here is mirrored up there, and vice versa. And this is used to explain the power of music, too. The Spanish Kabbalist Rabbi Meir Ibn Gabay wrote, quote, David said, in order to ensure that the glory, that is the secret of the bride, will sing out and chant to thee, I shall thank you forever, incessantly, so that the glory on high will also not be silent. Because just as I am arousing here below, so the arousal will also be on high. And the secret is that the Knesset of Israel, that is singing, is the harp of David. And this is the reason that it is incumbent to arouse by means of a variety of melodies, so as to draw down the Holy Spirit and life from the source of life to his attributes, and this is the reason why the first of the qualities was that he had known to sing. In other words, because our actions are mirrored in the divine realm, just like the two violins or like a shadow to its object, when we play music, that music ascends to the world of the Sfirot and is mirrored there. In a way, thus, us singing or playing music makes God sing, the music rising from the lowest firah upwards throughout the whole tree of life, causing harmony between them and their own kind of music. This mirrored music, which when descending becomes identified with the Shekhinah, the divine presence or the Holy Spirit, is that which comes over the prophet or the person having a divine experience. You could thus say that music is the earthly version or mirror of the Holy Spirit itself, which when played causes the divine to sing, that song being the Holy Spirit itself, which descends to our world. It's profound stuff. A similar idea is further developed by one of the great figures of Kabbalah and Safed, Moshe Cordovero, who writes, quote, just as the supernal influx and the vitality descend from the world of emanation, and there it is pure, but when it descends to the world of creation and from there to the world of formation, it becomes coarse. So the supernal song and the arousal that ascends from below upward is purified and ascends from the world of formation to that of creation and from creation to emanation and within the emanation, from one degree to another, until it reaches the chambers and attics, and there they will be purified and ascends to cause joy to the supernal union between the spherot of Chochmah and Binah. As usual with Kabbalah, this is filled with technical language that is difficult to understand, but basically the song or music is in a way identified with the divine influx, which when ascending from our world to the divine world, um, sort of affects the divine world of the spherot and even contributes to the union and harmony between these spherot. Moshe Idel explains, quote, the song is, therefore, no different from the divine influx. It is a mode of the divine produced here below. When sent on high, it becomes purified in a manner reminiscent of the ascent of the astral body in the ancient mystical forms of literature. 
In other words, the song is a spiritual energy, a way to respond to the divine with a human activity that affects the union between the two higher spherot. There is a relationship here where music can affect the divine realm, which in itself, of course, will affect the entire world. This speaks to the power of music like nothing else. So while we don't find the same practical use of music in these theosophical Kabbalists, we can still see how music is placed very firmly and very profoundly within a metaphysical and cosmological framework and is given a very important role. But the circle in Safed or Tzvat also came to employ music in practical ways too. Indeed, the people around the great Isaac Luria essentially invented the Kabbalat Shabbat ritual, which takes place every Friday evening to welcome the Sabbath and which involves songs that are attributed to Luria himself and his students. The Kabbalat Shabbat is a mainstay in basically all Jewish weekly rituals, thus showing how much of an impact the Safedian group had on the larger world of Judaism. It also shows that they obviously saw music as important since they included self-written songs as part of this significant ritual. All of these developments came to influence the Hasidic movement, one of the most recent manifestations of Jewish mysticism in which music has come to play a very major role. Here, we see both the theosophical speculations about music's influence on the divine realm developed by the Kabbalists, but the Hasidim has also always been heavily focused on a personal, inner transformation and experience of the divine. Just like in Abulafia, the Chassid wants to achieve Devekut, a union with the divine which is present everywhere at all times. And this means that the Chassidim also very much adapt the perspectives on music held by the prophetic Kabbalists associated with Abulafia. Music can not only outwardly affect the world in the theurgical sense, but also transform the soul of the individual and lead him to the experience of God's imminence. Quote, if words are the pen of the mind, then music is the quill of the soul, said Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad movement within Hasidism. Indeed, it seems that from the very founding of the Hasidic movement with the figure of the Baal Shem Tov, music played a major role. He himself is said to have loved music and made it a part of Hasidic practice. Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, one of the Baal Shem Tov students, is attributed with stating, quote, all melodies are derived from the source of sanctity, from the temple of music. Impurity knows no song, because it knows no joy, for it is the source of all melancholy. End of quote. And, quote, music originates from the prophetic spirit and has the power to elevate one to prophetic inspiration. End quote. For this reason, there developed a very deep and varied tradition of Hasidic music, the most famous of which is probably the Negunim, Hasidic songs that are often vocal yet wordless, although some have also added words to them. Instrumental as well as vocal music make up the repertoire of Hasidic music, a genre that can vary a lot from region to region and in these circumstances it is used. But regardless, the Hasidim retained the mystical connection and perspective on music as not only fundamental in a metaphysical way, but also extremely powerful to help the soul travel on the path to union with God, perspectives which they inherited from the great figures of theosophical and prophetic Kabbalah. So while music in Judaism and Jewish mysticism has obviously changed and evolved over time and ideas and perspectives have shifted, there is a line running through basically the whole tradition. A line that starts with the ancient prophets and their use of music as a catalyst for revelation and in the Temple of Jerusalem, and which then runs through the mystical employment and theories surrounding it across history all the way until today. 
Needless to say, music remains a significant part of Judaism. The Hasidic movement probably remains the most influential form of Jewish mysticism today, in which music plays a major role, as we have seen. But we've also seen a surge in popularity for Kabbalah in the last few decades, which keeps alive the fascinating speculations and theories of figures like Cordovero, Isaac Luria, and Abraham Abulafia. So next time you hear a really good song, try to remember how it participates in the eternal correspondence between the divine and human realm, and maybe inches you just a little bit closer to spiritual perfection. I'll see you next time.